Because last time we talked about no purposes of God could be thwarted from the book of Job, right? And we went to Ephesians and saw what God was doing in the church. His plan, his plan to unite all things in Christ, both on heaven and in the, on the earth. And so I thought it would be good for us to jump into that today. And we're going to jump right into the middle of it in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And uh, the first few chapters, uh, Paul has uh, talked about the doctrinal things, why we should uh, worship God. And then the last three chapters are going to be about how you should worship God. But I want to begin with an illustration because uh, your attitude and your actions are a reflection of what you believe. Your attitude and your actions reflect what you believe. And so we have some spiritual realities that we're going to cover today that are reflected in the church. But I want to give you a true illustration of how your attitude and your actions reflect what you believe. There was a fellow named Andrew Stewart who went into the bank one day. And he sat down and he was reading a paper. Now, why this guy was reading a paper in the bank, I don't know. But it's March 31st. And he's reading the paper, which has the date on it. But he must have thought the paper was a day old. Because Andrew thinks that it's April 1st. He thinks it's April Fool's Day. Now, while he's sitting there reading the paper, there's a fellow who comes in. And he's got a bag that he's holding, and he's got his hand in the bag, and he has come here for the purpose of robbing the bank. And so he goes up to the, uh, to the cashier, and he says, I've got a gun. Seriously, I've got a gun. Hand over the money. And so as the cashiers are afraid and they start bundling up the money... Andrew here gets up, walks over, and he goes, Hey, that's funny, mate. That's my best British accent. You like it? So it's April Fool's, isn't it? And the guy says, I've got a gun. I, what are you talking about? Right? And he just grabs the bag, pulls it off the guy, and the guy didn't have a gun. And so the guy who was robbing the bank and was being successful at that point is now thwarted, and he runs out. And runs down the street. He's eventually captured and taken away. But Andrew acted on what he believed. He believed it was April 1st. But it wasn't April 1st. But God used that to thwart a bank robbery. But I say all that to say your attitude and your actions reflect what you believe. He did not think this man posed any danger at all because he thought it was a prank. And this morning, I want us to look at a message that I've entitled Spiritual Realities That Are Reflected in the Church. As I said, those first three chapters tell us about why we should worship God. And the last three chapters are going to talk about how we should worship God. But in verses 1 through 6, we're going to find two main spiritual realities that Paul directs our attention to. 
And the first one that I want to look at is actually found in verses 4 through 6. Now, I don't normally start at the end, but today we're going to because Paul, this is the spiritual reality that Paul is getting at that is supposed to be how we reflect our walk. So in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And here we see the spiritual reality of the church. There is one unified church body governed by the Trinity. There is one unified church body governed by the Trinity. In this passage, we're going to see the theme of unity in the church centered on the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father. Paul first addresses unity in the Spirit. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one body of believers who are possessed by the one Holy Spirit. And this one body is representative of all saints of all ages. Right? So we're, we're brought into the church And that church includes the writer of this epistle, Paul, who is now dead, but with the Lord in glory. And it includes you and I. And it includes others on this earth now, both past and now, who have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles or, or races or languages or any of those things. There is one body of believers who are possessed by the one Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that identifies and unifies the body. And it is the Spirit that makes us to be a fit dwelling place for God. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 22, Paul wrote, In Christ you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we've talked in the past about how the Spirit indwells each of us uh, as, as believers, but when we're brought together, we are spiritual stones. The Apostle Peter talks about being built up by the Spirit. It's like we're the stones. The Spirit is the, the uh, mortar that joins us together to be a dwelling place of God. There is something special that happens on a Sunday morning when we gather together. You are special as a believer, but there is something special about us getting together as a church. So, you may ask at this point, if there's one body, one spirit, why are there so many denominations? Well, there are different interpretations of biblical truths. And there are differences that may include things directly related to the gospel. When that happens, there are splits, such as the Reformation, when Protestants separated from the Roman Catholic Church. At the center of that split were truths relating to the gospel, about one, what one must believe in order to be saved. So here at Faith Baptist Church, we distinguish doctrines in three categories. There are core Beliefs, there are characteristic beliefs, and then there are charity beliefs. And it's important to make uh, distinctions between doctrines. Some doctrines are just more important than others. What you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ is weightier than what you believe about baptism. And what you believe about baptism is weightier 
than what you believe about the end times and the timing of the Christ's return. Therefore, to help categorize both the weightiness of beliefs and determine what beliefs are required for membership, we use categories of core, characteristic, and charity. So at the core are those doctrines and beliefs that represent historic and evangelical Christianity. In other words, these are beliefs that are required for someone to be a Christian. Some of those beliefs are the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Trinity, and other different core beliefs that you must believe in order to be saved for the gospel to hold its core. And then there are characteristic beliefs. These are the doctrines that characterize Faith Baptist Church. In other words, there are true churches filled with true Christians who might believe differently than we do on these beliefs. Okay, good. I didn't hear any gasps. Okay, so that's good. All right. There are Christians in other churches that disagree with Baptists about certain things, but they're still Christians. Characteristic beliefs for our church include believer's baptism. In other words, you must be a believer before you're baptized. Uh, For instance, the Presbyterian Church, they'll baptize babies. I have a good friend in Harlingen uh, who is a pastor of a Presbyterian Church. and we We jab one another about baptism because I believe he is a Christian. He agrees on the doctrines of the gospel with me, but we disagree on these characteristic doctrines. So... The mode of baptism would be one of those uh, congregational government that Baptists have, as we have autonomous Baptist churches, those type of things. How the church is governed is not all that important. It's not important at all to the gospel itself, but it is important for how we agree to come together and worship together. So requirement for membership at FBC is believing the core and the characteristic beliefs summarized there in our confession of faith. But then charity beliefs are those beliefs that Christians can agree to disagree on. In other words, we're going to be charitable with one another in these particular beliefs. Charitable beliefs would would be alcohol consumption. Is it okay to consume alcohol? Now, drunkenness is forbidden in the Scriptures, okay? So we're not talking about drunkenness. But alcohol consumption, people disagree on whether that's okay for Christians. But that's okay. We can disagree and still be members of the same church. Details on the timing of the second coming of Christ. They're fun to talk about, but we really don't have to agree on them in order to be members of the same church. Uh, Rather, you uh, think that you can mow your lawn on the Sabbath day uh, or not. We can disagree on those things and still be members of the same church. 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 teach us how we can relate to one another regarding these charity beliefs. And we're not to condemn one another and say, you're not really a Christian if you don't believe this. That's not, and, and then we're also not to think that we're more holy than the other person who is is okay with these things. We just agree to disagree and trust that the Lord is leading us in a way that is best for us in these charity beliefs. So Christians and their churches should be unified, both doctrinally about the truth and then relationally with one another. Unfortunately, there's much disagreement over the 
proper interpretation of truth and without agreement on what is true, there can't be unity. However, we as a body of believers are to strive for that unity, beginning in our own church and then with other churches of like faith. Now, back to Ephesians 4.4. We are told that there's unity in the spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Our calling, according to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, is that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So our hope, then, of the fulfillment of that calling rests... In the Holy Spirit. And we find that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in Ephesians 4.30, he says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So when we were placed in Christ, we have this heavenly reality because we have been baptized by the Spirit. So there is one body of believers who are possessed by the one Holy Spirit who guarantees their future and eternity with God. And to that I say, Amen. But then we find unity in the Son. Look at verse 5. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just as there is only one Holy Spirit, there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Last week, I think we looked at this, uh, Acts 2, verse 36, Peter's sermon. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then in, in Acts 4:12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Since there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ, it is important that we know who Jesus Christ is. Right. Have you ever met anybody that shared your name? No. My name is actually Richard Harris. Everybody calls me David Harris because my dad was Richard Lee Harris. Now I'm Richard David Harris and everybody calls me David. But there is actually a Richard Harris who was an actor, right? And so you could say, well, who, you know Richard Harris? And you could say, now you could say, since you didn't know my actual first name, you could say, oh, yeah, I know Richard Harris. And then they start describing him, and it's not me, it's this dead actor. He said, well, now, now that's not the Richard Harris I know, right? Okay, well, now it's the same way with cults. Because we have cults, such as the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, who use the name Jesus, and they call him Jesus Christ and Lord Jesus Christ and that type of thing, but their actual beliefs about him do not describe what the Bible describes is the Lord Jesus Christ. They are mistaken on that. They are off on those very important doctrines. And if you're going to place your faith in someone, it better be the right one. Okay? And so... There's only one Savior in which we place our faith, and there's only one correct set of teachings regarding that Savior. Cults, theological cults, are defined by either well, they're they're mis 
beliefs or misunderstand, misunderstandings, false teaching on the person of Jesus Christ or the work of Jesus Christ. Those are the two things that you look for in uh, rather someone is in the faith. Jude appealed to believers to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Paul urged Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. And in his last letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul wrote to the Philippian believers to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul also states that there's one baptism. Now, it's the Spirit who baptizes us into the spiritual body of Christ, whereas water baptism is a physical act that reflects a spiritual reality and publicly identifies a person as a believer in Jesus Christ. The previous verse related to the Spirit, and so since verse 5 is related to Jesus, Paul must be talking here about water baptisms that publicly identify us with Jesus Christ. So one baptism after salvation. So you don't need to be baptized multiple times in your life. There's one baptism that identifies you with Jesus Christ. Water baptism, though, does publicly identify you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it should take place after you place your faith in Jesus Christ. For instance, I was sprinkled as a teenager, as a Presbyterian, and we were called, that was called our baptism. But I got saved later on, and then I was baptized. So we, as Baptists, believe in believers' baptism. And I was baptized by immersion. It represents death and burial and resurrection. So there's a picture there that's not represented by being sprinkled. Okay? This is more singing in the rain. This is more death with Christ. Okay? So, have you been baptized after your salvation? Have you publicly identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection? I encourage you to do so. If you are interested in that, please see me. We also have a membership form out there that can double as a baptism form. You can fill that out. You can also fill it out online. But let us know. We'd love to fill up the baptismal here behind me and baptize you and publicly identify you with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one faith regarding our Lord Jesus Christ whom we identify with publicly by being baptized. Then finally, we, in verse 6, we see unity in the Father. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there is one Father, a central doctrine in our monotheistic faith. Based on Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. And I've given you a handout that has the four statements from the ESV Study Bible. If you don't have an ESV Study Bible, I encourage you to get one. Buy one. I think they usually come with an electronic copy for free. I'm not positive on that. But it's just a tremendous resource. The articles that are in the back of it are wonderful. This image comes from that study Bible. It's a common image about the Trinity, and there are four statements. I've marked them on that uh, image that you have in your handout so that you understand what statement goes with what part of that image of the Trinity. 
we will not get into that. But there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons who are completely equal in attributes with the same divine nature. That's the summary. You can look into those things uh, later on. But Paul tells us here that our God is sovereign. He is over all. And our God is all-powerful. He is working through all. And He is imminent. He is in all. The spiritual reality is that there is one unified church body governed by the Trinity. Now, with that, I want us to look at a reasonable response to this calling that is put upon us as we look at verses, uh, uh, verse 1 there. There's the spiritual reality of the church, but we have believe, as believers each have a personal reality that we are called to in Christ. So the second spiritual reality is the basis for Paul's urging of believers in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to be holy and blameless before God in Christ in the spiritual realm. Now we're to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So here's a reasonable response to our spiritual reality. Paul is referring to our calling in Christ. And we've already looked at that in verse uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, to where he's placed us in the heavenly places with Christ. So now my conduct in the physical world should worthily reflect my spiritual calling to be a member of the body of Christ, the church. So we are called by God to stand before Him holy and blameless in Christ for eternity. The spiritual reality for believers is that we are blessed in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places, when we are placed in Christ. And I've given you on the flip side of your handout all the verses in Ephesians that talk about being placed in Christ and the blessings that we have. We won't go through all those for sake of time. But the spiritual reality is is that we are richly blessed in Christ. And because of all these blessings, we are urged to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of our great calling. And I like this uh, from a commentary on the word worthy. That word worthy is literally bringing up the other beam of the scales. Okay, so if you have scales and you got you got this side's down here and this side's up here, then we want to bring them to be equal. We want to bring this side up to match this side, right? So we've been called to be holy and blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been placed in Christ. We are named by Him. We are called Christians. Right? We have identified with Him in baptism. But I don't know about you, but I'm still down here. I still got this flesh. Right? And, and the man that stands before you today is not the same man spiritually that he was when he was saved 20-some years ago. He's gotten better. His worthiness, if you will, has been brought up, but I still fall short. But we're to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. If you're going to name the name of Christ, then... Walk in Him. Walk like Him. We're to be worthy, brought up to this. Since we are called into such rich spiritual privilege, our conduct in the physical world should be brought up to match our spiritual pedigree. 
You are not the son of a pauper, beloved. You are the son of a king. So my conduct in the physical world should worthily reflect my spiritual calling to be a member of the body of Christ, the church. And then in verse 2, he tells us of the character of this worthy walk. Verse 2, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is how we are to walk worthy of being called Christians. Now, note the absence of external qualities here. It's not about how you dress. It's not about your haircut. It's not about what Bible version you prefer. It's not about the music that you prefer. It's none of those things. This worthy walk is about humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These characteristics of believers who are conducting their lives in a manner that is worthy of all they are spiritually in Christ is listed for us. And they are essential for maintaining unity and peace in the local church. First, let's look at the definitions of some of these terms. Humility, humility or lowliness. It's, it's not thinking more of yourself than you ought to. Okay? But uh, Max Andrews says this, Humility does not mean that you see yourself as some pitiful excuse for humanity. That's not the humility that's being talked about here. You're not some low life above whom all other human beings exist some piece of refuse at the bottom of the human pile. Rather, humility means to see yourself as God sees you, with infinite and inherent value, but no more valuable than anybody else. God sees us as valuable, but you're not more valuable than anybody else. That's humility. Then we see gentleness. Gentleness. Uh, it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. And I, I love this part of this definition. It says, strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Strength that accommodates to another's weakness. In other words, you may be stronger than somebody else, but you're going to accommodate yourself. You're going to bring yourself down. You're going to be gentle with somebody Perhaps they struggle in an area that you don't struggle in spiritually with their flesh. And so you are the stronger brother, if you will, in that situation. But you're going to accommodate to them. Maybe you have more gifts and abilities to them than them, but you're going to accommodate yourself. You're going to be gentle. And if you don't have it, we have that book, Gentle and Lowly. We have free copies here. If you want one, come in to the office. I'll give you one. But Gentle and Lowly, it is... How Jesus is described. Now, would you say that Jesus is all-powerful, right? And like he really is better than me, (laughs) but he is gentle with me. Strength that accommodates to another's weakness. So humility is a proper view of oneself, which allows God to rule your life. And then gentleness is the outworking of your humility in relationships. I'm not any better than you. So I'm going to accommodate to you. Humility and gentleness. 
And then we have patience or long-suffering. It's the state of being able to bear up under provocation. Patience. I saw, I saw a great example of not bearing up under provocation yesterday. I had to go to the Verizon store, and as I'm waiting there in line, there's this, these two brothers, and, and one of them's older and bigger, and then there's the younger one. And the older one has the iPad with the cracked screen, but he can still play it. Right, but it has to be plugged into the the little table there at the up. And so the little brother he wants it, and the other brother he's not giving it to him. And and so this guy is forbearing patiently with his brother who wants this. And then he, the little brother, he shoves him away. And so the little brother walks around the table and tries to pull the plug on the iPad, like you know he's. He's poking, right? He's poking the bear. So the, the brother puts his hand on this, lays the iPad down, and then starts punching. And then the mother says, stop it. And then each accused one another of starting it. And uh, I did not intervene. But patience, being able to bear up under provocation. You know, there's just times in life when people have a bad day. And they may say something to you that's hurtful, even mean. And you bear with it out of love, patience. And that gets on to bearing with one another, forbearing. To regard with tolerance, to endure, to bear up with, in love to put up with our brother's faults and idiosyncrasies, knowing that we have our own. Why does the Bible command us to bear with one another? You've heard me say it many times. Because some of you are unbearable. Right? So we have to bear with one another. And man, there's days I'm unbearable. We bear with one another in love. So when you have a proper view of yourself in humility, you are gentle in dealing with others. You're patient when you're provoked. And you're lovingly tolerant with others and their shortcomings. In short, we have a proper view of ourselves. When we have a proper view of ourselves, we will lovingly serve others. Now, let's turn that around and just see an unworthy walk, okay? An unworthy walk. When you think of yourself as more important or better than others, then you will be rough in dealing with others, impatient when you are provoked, and intolerant of others and their shortcomings. In short, when we are proud, we will want to selfishly be served by others. And the sad thing is, Proud believers end up isolating themselves from the church body, not even necessarily by removing their presence, but by their attitude of superiority and rough treatment of others. I mean, we just don't tend to want to hang around with other people who are jerks or rough with people or not gentle or not kind, right? We have to make an effort to do that. And so then when we make an effort to do that and we just encounter it again, it it makes it hard, right? So that's an unworthy walk when you begin to think more of yourself than you should. So we are urged to be unified in the physical world in a way that is worthy of the spiritual realities in the heavenlies. In fact, verse 3 tells us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager means to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous or to take pains, to make every effort. We're to be eager 
to maintain the unity. Maintain is to hold on to something so as not to give it up or lose it. Your children ever have something and you needed them to put it up and they didn't want it, they didn't want to let go, right? That's, that's what we are. We are to be eager to maintain the unity that we have in Christ. The unity of the Spirit, it says. It's the spiritual reality that we previously looked at in this passage. It's the fact that the universal church is spiritually unified by the Spirit. Our local physical manifestation of the church should make every effort to maintain a unity that reflects these spiritual realities. Now, notice this unity is not something we create, but rather something we manifest. The Spirit is the unifying factor in the church. We simply reflect that unity by maintaining every effort, or by making every effort to maintain it. In other words, as much as it is within me, be at peace with all men. If there's somebody going to be selfish in this relationship, may it not be me. If it's somebody that's not going to be gentle in this relationship, may it not be me. If there's going to be somebody who's not humble in this relationship, may it not be me. We maintain it. We don't create it. We are urged to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This bond, I believe, is a physical manifestation of the spiritual peace that we have with God because of Christ. In the book of Romans, it talks about how we're no longer under wrath, but we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven so much. And because we are, we are at peace with God and we will never be condemned then we should be eager to maintain the peace that we have with God. We need to try to maintain that with one another. We should make every effort to maintain a unity that reflects these spiritual realities. The peace we experience with the Father is the peace that we should experience as a bond, as a bond that we have with other believers. So, I must make every effort to maintain unity and keep peace in my church by humbling myself and lovingly serving others. Because of all that we are spiritually in Christ, the church should humbly and gently bear with others patiently in love while striving to maintain peaceful unity, which is exemplified in the work of the Trinity. Was the Trinity unified in the salvation plan? Right? God decreed it. Christ paid for it. Spirit applies it into the lives of believers. There's no disunity there. And we're to reflect that as a group of believers in the body of Christ. So, a life that is lived worthy of our calling will strive to maintain unity and peace in the local church by humbly and lovingly serving others. So if God's goal is to bring all of us together in Christ, think today, what Christians might I be at odds with? Am I striving to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for sending Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and sending Your Spirit to seal that deal. 
and placing us in Christ in the heavenly places. Lord, may we as a people live up to that worthy position that You have placed us in. And Father, may the reality that there is one church unified by one Spirit, identified by one Spirit in this world, may we, as best we can here at Faith Baptist Church and with other churches of like faith, may we, may we represent that unity, that the world may see that and glorify You. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.